Good morning. Um, some of you wouldn't know this because you couldn't see, and I'm not trying to embarrass anyone, but the Beals are here with us up in the balcony. Praise God. <laughs> the, the Lord has heard our prayers and has blessed, and we're really, really glad to have them back with us. God has been exceedingly kind, exceedingly kind. Um, but anyway, with that said, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 12. It is Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Uh, we have a few more weeks of standalone sermons before we get back into the Gospel of Mark. I know some of you have been wondering, are we ever going to finish Mark? Uh, and I, I plan to. Uh, just give me a few weeks and we'll get back into it. Uh, but it's our, it's our last service of the year, and usually at the end and beginning of years, I, I preach topically about subjects that I would like for us to devote ourselves to and meditate upon for the coming year. And the topic I've decided to preach on today is that of boldness for Christ. Um, one of the top ten prayer requests that I get from you guys as your pastor is the request for prayer that God would help you to be bold for Jesus, right? It's not that I get it every day. It's not even that I have you guys request that every week, but it's common enough that it, I find myself often praying <laughs> that the Lord would help us to be bold for Christ. And so I thought it would be fitting uh, for me to preach on the subject, especially in the, in the light of the fact that in recent weeks, I've noticed an uptick in those requests. Um, so again, lots of people have recently talked to me about their desire to be more bold for Christ. They want to be more open about the faith. They want to be more aggressive in their evangelism. They want to be more public about their allegiance to Christ. They want the courage to speak openly against wickedness instead of being silent in the face of evil. Uh, they want the courage to refuse to countenance sin even when their closest friends and family are engaged in it. People in this congregation want to grow in boldness for Christ and praise God for that. Right? We, like, this is a good thing. We need more of that. We need that more of that in every church, but we need more of that in our church as well. This is good. It's a good desire. But my dear brothers and sisters, it's going to come at a price. It's going to come at a price. It's going to cost you something to be bold for Christ. We live, it, we live in a society that is getting more and more hostile against Christianity. And so it's going to cost you maybe more than it did your parents or your grandparents. Being bold for Christ, that is living openly for him, living righteously in a fallen world is going to cost something in every age until Christ returns. But the price will be higher at some times and in some places more than others. And it's pretty clear to anyone who's paying attention that unless the Lord grants national-scale repentance, we are knocking on the door of the most severe hatred Christians have ever seen in the history of this country. And it's going to cost us something to live openly and faithfully for Christ. So then in light of that, a question arises that we need to answer. How are we to be bold in the face of persecution? How are we supposed to do it? How are we to be bold in the face of hatred? What do we need to know? Right? What do we need to do? How do we need to be thinking if we're to be bold as Christ commands us to? And that's what I'm going to try to answer this morning. How are we to be bold for Christ? And I'm going to answer that by pointing out three things. And here they are. If you're a note taker, here they are. I'm telling you my sermon right off the rip. If we're to be bold for Christ, we must, one, 
make our peace with the fact that it's going to cost us something. Make your peace with that. Two, we must believe the words and promises of Christ. And third, we must pray. So that's where we're going. What are we to do? How are we to be bold for Christ? With that said, now if you would and are able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Our Lord Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you with humble hearts, ready to submit to your word. And we ask that you would work in us this morning and sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Show us how we are to live in a sinful world and encourage us to do so. And Lord, we cannot do this apart from you. So Lord, command what you will and give us grace to obey your command. Have mercy on us and teach us this morning. Work in our hearts and glorify yourself today through the preaching of your most holy word. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. If we're to be bold for Christ, the first thing that we have to do is come to terms with, we have to make our peace with the fact that it's going to cost us something. Our text is found at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And here Jesus is speaking to his disciples about what characterizes a true disciple. He's telling those who have said that they've committed to him, those who we would say today, who have professed to be Christians, he's speaking about how professing Christians are supposed to live. And he's telling about the blessings uh, that he promises to those who belong to him and follow him. And here at the end of the list that we call the Beatitudes, he tells us what to expect if we live for him. And it's not a picnic on this earth. It's not a bed of roses. It's not always going to be fun. He tells us that we are to live righteously. We are to live like him. We are to live for him. And he tells us, you have to respect it. He tells us straight, we're going to be hated for it. He mentions that we will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. He mentions that we, that we will be hated on my account, that is, on Christ's account. For his sake, we will be hated. If we follow him, if we live for him, we will be hated and we will suffer. But then that makes us ask the question, what does it mean to live righteously? What does it mean to live for Christ? What does it mean to be persecuted for righteousness' sake? What does it mean to be hated on account of Christ? Now, there may be more things to say. I, I have a twofold answer for this. First, to live righteously means, quite simply, to not live like the world. It means to not live like the unbelievers around us. Why do I say that? Well, the Bible tells us very clearly that the world is unrighteous, that the world hates righteousness as defined by God. And that's because the world loves sin and refuses to part with it. So to live righteously means that we openly live differently from the rest of the world. 
We are not entertained by the same things that they are. We do not participate in their sinful activities. We do not share their same sense of humor. Our values are not the same. We do not run with those who love to do evil. We do not join them in their wicked works, and we do not countenance their sin. That is, we do not associate ourselves with it, and we do not wink at it as if it's not a big deal. By your life, Christian, hear me, by your lifestyle, by the way that you live, you will make it known that you belong to Christ. You make it glaringly clear that your citizenship is primarily in heaven. You make it unquestionable that you belong to Christ and are living to please him and not yourself. And in living this way, you make a clear distinction between the wicked and righteous. Without even saying a word, you will make a distinction between the wicked and righteous. That is between the believer and the unbeliever. Let me give you some examples here, and the list is a bit long, but I want you to see what I'm talking about. When you are invited to participate in drunkenness, you decline. When asked if you've seen the most recent smut coming out of Hollywood, if it indeed is moral garbage, not all of it is, but most of it is, if it indeed is moral garbage, you say, no, I have not seen it because you have not. When they tell their perverse jokes, you do not laugh because you do not find it funny. When they speak of their adulteries and fornications, you cringe and recoil at the thought. When they blaspheme God and take his name in vain, you do not smile and act as if you believe it's okay. When they, skip church to, when they ask you to skip church to join them in some activity, you decline and you go worship the Lord instead. When you're encouraged to do something dishonest at work in order to make more money, you refuse and simply make less money. When encouraged to lie in order to get out of trouble, you tell the truth willingly and take the hit. When they disrespect, God help us with this, when they disrespect those in positions of authority, like those whom we've elected to govern us, when they disrespect them, you do not join them. And I don't mean calling out godlessness for being godless and calling sin, sin, but when there's mockery and disrespect, you do not join them. When they gossip and tell stories that harm the reputations of others, you walk away and you take no part in their conversation. You behave differently. You live with an eye toward heaven, not daring to do anything that would displease your God and King. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we live differently from the world. As the Bible tells us, we are a peculiar people. As Peter tells us in 1 Peter, we are a holy nation that has been called out of the world and into God's kingdom. And so then we live out that citizenship on earth, and our lives are markedly different. Our interests are different. Our speech is different. Our manners are different. Our entire way of life is different because it is guided and governed by the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, as you live this way, you will be light in a dark world. Right? And everyone likes that idea, right? Like this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Right? We're going we're to shine into the darkness, and that's so positive. Yes, you will shine as a light into the darkness. And in doing so, you will expose the wickedness of those around you. You will expose wickedness, and they will hate you for it. Again, examples here. By being honest, you will shine light on dishonesty. By being sexually chaste, you will shine light on sexual immorality and whoredom. By, by putting the Lord's Day worship first, you will expose idolatry. 
By not gossiping, you will expose malicious hearts. By not laughing, you will expose perversity. By your reverence, you will expose blasphemy. You get the idea. Just by living righteously and refusing to be like the world, you will expose the world as wicked. And Jesus says they will hate you for it. You will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? Because as John tells us in John chapter 3, the darkness hates the light because the light reveals the ugliness of the darkness. And so the darkness will try its best to extinguish the light because it cannot bear to look upon itself. We will live righteously and we will expose wickedness in doing so. But the other way, the other thing that we do to live righteously is opening our mouths and speaking about the darkness. Brothers and sisters, this, this will get you hated more than anything. This will get you hated. Opening your mouth and speaking about darkness will get you hated. Opening your mouth and condemning sin as sin, wickedness as wicked, and evil as evil will bring the wrath of men upon you faster than anything else. And yet, this is part of what it means to live righteously. To live righteously in a wicked world means that we discourage that which is evil. We hate, please know, know this, Psalm 139, we hate what God hates. We condemn what he condemns. We forbid what he forbids. We oppose, as John Calvin said, we oppose bad causes as far as lies in our power. And this means that we must speak. As disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, as members of his church, and therefore representatives of him on the earth, we must speak as he spoke. And I defy you to read the Gospels and then tell me he did not speak out and condemn sin. What do you think they killed him for? They didn't like what he said because he spoke the truth. And we must speak like him. When we have opportunity to speak, listen, please hear me. This is, this is so big for me growing, to, growing in, in, in maturity as a Christian. When we have opportunity to speak, we do not sit back as if we have no opinion. Why? Because we have an opinion. More than an opinion, we have the truth of the word of God. And our thoughts are now our king's thoughts, and so we speak as he would speak. You are not an opinionless person. First off, you're just not in general. Second, even more as a Christian, the opinion of your Lord, which is the truth itself, is now your opinion, and your personal private thoughts don't matter anymore, actually. If you're a Christian, Christ's thoughts are now your thoughts. That's what it means to submit to him as Lord. You submit your mind to him. So again, let me give you some examples here. When our family, friends, and co-workers are talking about how great transgenderism is and it becomes our turn to speak, we do not keep silent. We open our mouths and say, male and female created he them. And it's a great sin for a person to mutilate his or her body. And it's evil to encourage it. These people need help and we need to help them, not encourage them in their delusions and self-mutilation. We open our mouths 
when people around us are championing homosexuality as normal and praiseworthy, and it's our turn to speak, we do not keep silent. We open our mouths and say, God's word is clear. This is a grievous sin against the Lord, and it is wicked to encourage people to sin against God, and so I will not promote it. When unbelievers around us are talking about their fornications and perversions, we do not give silent approval. We open our mouths and say, bud, you need to get married. What you're doing is wrong and God hates it and you need to repent and believe upon Christ or you will perish. When people around us are celebrating their weekend drunkenness, we do not laugh with them. Rather, we declare drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6. And friend, you need to repent and turn to Christ in faith. When people, I'm especially talking to people in my generation, when people talk about what a burden that children are and so they deserve to be killed in the womb, we open our mouths and declare with the psalmist, children are a heritage from the Lord. And we love children. And they're a blessing from God. And to kill them is to commit murder and bring yourself under the wrath of God. When people are around us encouraging, other, encouraging others to lie, we do not keep silent. We tell them lying is a sin and all men are to deal honestly with their neighbors. When heresy and false religion is promoted within or without the church, we do not sit by idly as if there's nothing to say. Instead, we open our mouths and declare the truth of the word and call heretics to repent and submit to the truth or they will perish in hell for their soul murder. Even when churches stray from the truth in doctrine or practice, we do not sit silently. We open our mouths and call even our brothers and sisters to repent and return to the Lord. We speak. We speak. We promote the good and we discourage the evil. We warn sinners of the eternal wrath of God in hell. And we tell people, about the work that Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection to save all who will believe. Brothers and sisters, we speak as our Lord spoke, for he was righteous, and he spoke righteously to the world around him. He told them the truth, and so we as his disciples must declare the same message that he did. We must declare the same law, the same warnings of hell, the same gospel of salvation, and the same call to repent and believe. We must speak. As much as lies in our power, we are to discourage and condemn what is evil and promote what is good. And our Lord tells us here in the text that when we live like this, when we live righteously and speak righteously, we will be hated for it. We will be. Our Lord uses three words in this text to describe what can and will befall us. And I want to be clear, not all of these things will happen to everyone. Right? Not all of these things are going to happen to everyone. And your life will not in every single moment that you live and breathe be characterized by these three things. There will be moments of peace for you. There may be long times of peace for you. But at least some of these things that our Lord mentions, in some measure, at least some of the time, will happen to those who follow Jesus. And the first thing Jesus says is they will persecute us. And this word in the Greek means to chase or to run down. It carries the idea of what we think of usually when we think of persecution, right? Someone being run out of town, a physical persecution, being physically beaten is contained here. Uh, being martyred, being killed for the sake of Christ is contained in this word. Uh, being hunted down and harassed 
is what Jesus has in mind with this word persecuted. But it's not just physical suffering. Persecution includes imprisonment. You were run down and captured. Imprisonment, losing your possessions, losing your freedoms. It also includes economic persecution, where you lose your job, your savings, your future work. More than that, in the, in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 6, Jesus mentions our being excluded. They'll exclude you. This is social ostracism, being ostracized, not being invited to things, not being able to take part in society. I don't just mean you don't get invited to a party because someone doesn't like you because you're a Christian, although that would be included in this as well. But more specifically, you are not able to take part in society because, you, because you've been put in the corner. You are considered a deplorable. You are counted as an outcast that nobody will associate with, help, pity, or do anything good for whatsoever. You are over here, and the rest of society is over here, and you are not permitted over here with society. Jesus is telling us that the world may come to hate us so severely that they may try to starve us out and make us bend by taking our money. They may try to make us recant and be silent by taking away our rights and freedoms. They may cast us completely out of society and put us in the corner. They may try to silence us by ripping our tongues out and torturing us. They may even take our very lives. So great is the hatred of the world that we as Christians should remember that these things are all on the table all the time for all Christians. Do I think that we're facing this kind of persecution in the, in the very, very near future in our country? No, I don't. But it is on the table. That's what our Lord's teaching us here. It's on the table. And just real quick, what do you think makes North Korea any spiritually different, the unbelievers in North Korea, than the unbelievers in the United States? There's nothing spiritually different about them. The Bible says they're enemies of God and haters of good. If it happens elsewhere, don't think that it can't happen here. That's foolishness. That's foolishness. The unregenerate heart is the same from ethnicity to ethnicity, person to person, country to country. These things are always on the table for Christians. These are always possibilities for us as Christians. And again, we know that our brothers and sisters in the past and even now in some parts of the world suffer these very things. And they do so for the sake of Christ. Why? Because they live for him openly. And they are bold about it. The second word Jesus uses here, he says, they will revile us. Revile us. This word means to cast in the teeth. It's to throw something in your face. That is, it's to throw insults into someone's face. To, as Steve Lawson said, metaphorically knock someone's teeth down their throat with your words. You're throwing it into their teeth. To be reviled is to receive verbal abuse. To be torn down horribly with words. Jesus is saying here that we will receive insults for his sake. We will be called bigots, close-minded, on the wrong side of history, right? This is the unbelieving world's greatest hits right now for us. We will be called haters, enemies of society, people who are stuck in the past. We will be called, please get ready for this one, despisers of your own children, that is said about people in our day. Their kid comes out as gay and they do not uh, condone that. 
They don't hate their child, but they don't endorse it or encourage it, and people tell them, you hate your daughter. We will be told that we hate our children. We will be called enemies of progress. We will be called mentally deficient. We will be called mean-spirited, quarrelsome, fault-finding, and self-righteous. And they will call us much worse than this, many things that I cannot say in polite company. Christian, they will insult you. And though this seems so small compared to the physical persecution that was already mentioned, Jesus is calling it a form of suffering for his sake, is he not? Verse 11, I don't know if you've caught this or not, verse 11 is actually expounding on verse 10. They're not different beatitudes. Jesus is expounding upon blessed are those who are persecuted. So then being insulted for Christ is a form of suffering persecution. It's a form. It's a lesser form, but it's a real form. And though it's certainly not as bad as being burned to the stake, this will still hurt. I hope we're all mature enough to know that the children's rhyme, sticks and stones, is a lie. It always hurts to be insulted, especially when you know that you have done nothing wrong, but you've merely lived righteously and told people the truth. And thirdly, Jesus says they will utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Reviling is an insult to your face. Here, Jesus is talking about lies told about you behind your back. And this is devastating. People will lie about us. They will make up stories that are designed to ruin our reputations. Pure women will have lies told that make them harlots. Calm men will have lies told that make them bad-tempered. Generous Christians will have lies told that make them out to be greedy because they're so well off. The honest will be slandered as liars. You get the idea. Lies will be told about us that are designed to discredit us. I have some own in my own life that I, I won't share, but I, I remember one minister telling me a story from his own life, and he said, David, did you know that I've cheated on my wife three times? And I said, no. He said, well, that's what I've heard. That's what I've heard. I've cheated on my wife. And we laughed about it for a minute, right? Because like the guy was a smart aleck and it was kind of funny. But that is a devastating lie. Those of you who are married know that that, that could be a marriage ruiner if your spouse believed it. That was a devastating lie that was intended to ruin his marriage, split his church, and discredit his entire ministry. And why was it told? Because he preached the truth and somebody somewhere hated him for it. And wanted to ruin him. Slander and false accusations will be our lot. Our reputations may be ruined, at least in the eyes of the world, but hopefully not in the eyes of the church, although that is on the table as well. Read Galatians and First and Second Corinthians where you see that these things can take place within the church where lies are told, slander happens, insults are given. The Apostle Paul suffered all of these things from within the church. But our reputations may be ruined. And all this will happen. Why? Because we shine brightly in the darkness and call them to repent of their sin and believe upon Christ. You've done nothing wrong. And yet you are hated and suffer for it. And notice in verse 11 that Jesus says a very important word. Blessed are you. When? When? Not if. Not if. When? 
these things happen to you. These things are going to happen to us all. At some point, in some way, at different times in our lives, some will suffer more and some will suffer less, but these things will happen to us all in some measure. That is what Jesus says. Blessed are you when these things happen to you. Brothers and sisters, this is our heritage. Read the book of Acts. Imprisonments, beatings, stonings. Read church history. Covered in pitch, set on fire, and used as torches to light garden parties. Covered in the skins of animals and thrown to wild dogs to be eaten to death. This is our heritage. These things are bound to happen to each of us if we live a godly life in Christ Jesus. But remember, avoiding persecution is always very easy. It's very easy. I'll quote from John MacArthur's commentary here. The way to avoid persecution is obvious and easy. To live like the world, or at least live and let live, will cost us nothing. To mimic the world's standards or never criticize them will cost us nothing. To keep quiet about the gospel especially the truth that apart from its saving power, men remain in their sins and are destined for hell, will cost us nothing. To go along with the world, to laugh at its jokes, to enjoy its entertainment, to smile when it mocks God and takes his name in vain, and to be ashamed to take a stand for Christ will not bring persecution. Those are the habits of sham Christians. End quote. Brothers and sisters, if we live for Christ, if we live openly for Christ, it's going to cost us something. And please hear me. If it costs us nothing, if we've never suffered anything for his sake, even a small thing, if we've never suffered anything for his sake, we must ask ourselves some questions. And the first is this, and it's glaringly obvious, but it's not fun to have to ask. You must ask yourself this, am I actually a Christian? Jesus says that this stuff will happen to all Christians in some measure. Again, whether great or small, at some point in time, it's going to happen, but it hasn't ever happened to you at all. So it is a fair thing to ask, are you actually a Christian? Are you actually a follower of Jesus, or are you simply a little religious but I like to give the benefit of the doubt because the word of God does that. Maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you are. Maybe you are a Christian. I believe that nearly everyone in this room, I don't know everyone in this room well, but nearly everyone in here is a Christian. So maybe you are a Christian and yet you have not suffered anything for the sake of Christ's name. If that's you, then you must ask this. Are you really living openly for him? Or are you a secret agent Christian? Secret agents don't get in trouble because they stay hidden if they're any good at their job. You're someone who lives and let live, right? Oh, you know, that's just them. They can do whatever they want. I don't say anything, right? Live and let live. They leave me alone. I leave them alone. I don't ever say anything about their life being immoral or the fact that they're going to go to hell when they die. I just live and let live, and you never risk offending anyone. You never tell anyone the gospel. You never oppose wickedness, and you pretty much live like the world. And so nobody knows that you belong to Jesus. 
If that's you, then please hear me. You need to repent of your worldliness and your cowardice. Remember, Jesus tells us, look at verses 13 through 15. He talks about being salt and light. Jesus is telling us in those verses that our living openly for him is not an option. Right? I, I really do think that a lot of American Christians think that it is super Christianity to be really open and bold and open your mouth and speak and live righteously. That that's super Christianity. Those are the beacons of No, it's common is what Jesus says. It's for everyone. We are all to be salt and light. And as Jesus says, if I could paraphrase him, tasteless salt is worthless and hidden light is worthless. This is not an option. We must live openly for him, both in our lives and our words. Brothers and sisters, it's going to happen. If we live for Christ, we will suffer in some way. And so, all this has been to say one major point of the three that I want to make. We need to go ahead and make our peace with this at the outset. We need to accept it. We need to embrace the suffering of the cross. We need to obey our Lord Jesus who told anyone who wanted to follow him that we must take up our cross and follow him into the suffering. And that wasn't a metaphor about like, well, this is my burden to bear. I must take up my cross. No, he meant go ahead and bring the thing they're going to kill you on. You come ready to die. We need to go ahead and embrace this and take up our cross and follow him into the suffering. Making your peace with this is the first step to boldness. But we must not only make peace with the fact that we will suffer, we must also believe. That is, we must have faith. If we are to be bold, we must remember the words and promises of Christ in this text. This text is not all negative. I've, I've been quite negative for the last 33 and a half minutes. But not, this whole text is not negative. Christ gives us promises here. And if we were to be bold, even in the face of suffering, we must remember what he says. He says that we are blessed when these things happen to us. We're blessed. That is, good things belong to us when these things happen to us. We are destined to receive good from the Lord when these things happen to us. The world may hate us, but God smiles upon us. The world may disown us, but God owns us. We are blessed when we are hated. And God's face shines down on us when we are hated. And we know that we have all good things. But specifically, Jesus tells us that we are blessed with knowledge and promises when we are hated for his sake. The first is this. We are blessed because the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, belongs to us. That's in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we suffer for Christ's sake, we have the knowledge that we are indeed citizens of the kingdom of God. When we are hated for Christ, we have the assurance of our citizenship. We know to whom we belong. Our citizenship in heaven is certain. And why is this? How do we know that the kingdom is ours when we suffer? Because this is how they treated the king. This is how they treated the king of the kingdom when he was on earth. 
So when they treat us the same way that they treated him, we should look up to heaven and cry out, glory to God. And we do so because our status in God's kingdom has been made manifest on the earth. The kingdom of the world may hate us, but Jesus here gives us the assurance that we belong to a better, eternal, glorious kingdom. And so in our suffering, we really are blessed. Second, we are blessed with the promise of heaven. Jesus tells us that our reward is in heaven. And let me reason with you for a moment. If our reward is in heaven and we are to receive it one day, then we know that we will one day be in heaven to receive it in full. Christian, you're blessed. Please hear me. I mean this. We don't think about heaven enough. Read the people who suffered more than us. They thought about it all the time. We are blessed. Heaven is your home, Christian. Let the world do its worst. How long are we here anyway? 70 or 80 years? And then glory. Eternal glory. Eternal blessedness. A land of perfection wherein righteousness dwells. Where there will be no more suffering or pain or hatred for God's people. This is our destiny. Heaven is ours. So ultimately, who cares what they do to us here? We can bear the reproach of the world because we know that this is not our final destination. Like Abraham, we look for a city with foundations that cannot be shaken. We long for a heavenly country. And when we suffer, Jesus says, you can know that that heavenly country belongs to you. It's ours I mean this with all sincerity. May God help us to set our eyes on heaven. It's all good. May God help us to set our eyes on heaven. Please hear me. Right, tune in with me here. Right, It was Cocoa Melon or something. It's going to be fine. I am convinced that if we get just a glimpse of the glory that awaits if we see for just a moment with the eye of faith, then we will not care what it costs us on earth. If we could just see for a second the stuff that the Apostle Paul says, I don't have words for it because no one has ever seen what I have just seen. I don't know how to describe it to you. If we could just see it for a moment, we would not care what the world does to us. Christian, can you see how blessed that you actually are? As the Apostle Paul says, what we suffer in this world is not worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits. You will never think of this world again once you're there. You'll never think of it again. So set your eyes on the Lord's promise of heaven and you will live boldly for him in this world. Third, we are blessed with a future reward in heaven. Not just heaven, but a reward. Now this may seem strange. And I'll be straight with you. I can't explain this. I really can't. But Jesus says that a great reward awaits those who suffer for his name. Great is your reward in heaven. Now, let's be clear. I, I, we need to get this straight. We are justified by faith alone. We are saved solely because of the merits and earning of Christ Jesus on our behalf. But about 25 times in the New Testament, we're told that we, we will be rewarded according to what we do on this earth. So then we're left to conclude that 
In addition to salvation, there are rewards for those who suffer for Christ. Now, you're probably asking the same question that I've been asking all week as I've meditated on this. What glory, what reward could there possibly be in addition to salvation? Like, what could possibly be added to eternal life in the presence of God? I don't know. I have no earthly idea. But I know that Jesus Christ is not a liar. That I know. He's not a liar. And he would not falsely promise us a reward that doesn't exist. And so we believe what he has said. And he tells us here that every ounce of suffering that we endure for him on this earth is accumulating for us a great reward in heaven. And great doesn't mean great. It means huge. A great reward. A massive reward. So Christian, God promises you a reward for your suffering. So when it comes, suffer gladly. Because you know that our Lord Jesus will make it worthwhile. He is not a crook. He is not a liar. He is going to bless us beyond anything that we have ever suffered here. And fourth, Jesus tells us here that we are blessed with the knowledge here and now that we stand in good company. And I confess that this has actually helped me to remain steadfast when I'm hated to my face. This has helped me a lot. Jesus says, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're in good company. Brothers and sisters, when we suffer for righteousness, when we suffer for Christ, we are taking part in a lineage of godly men. We're in good company, and that should embolden us to continue. The great men of old who lived for and spoke on behalf of God with all holy boldness, they were mistreated. And Jesus says when we are mistreated, we join them. We join them. Hear me. Even whenever someone merely insults you for Christ's sake, Jesus says, you are in the lineage of Isaiah, who was martyred. You are in the lineage of Jeremiah, who had death threats and attempts on his life. We stand with Daniel, who was thrown into the den of lions. We stand with King David, who was chased and run down for years. We stand with Moses, who was opposed by Pharaoh and even by some within Israel. We stand with holy men of old when we stand with Christ. Be encouraged, Christian. You're in good company when you're hated. You're not doing anything wrong. Please hear me. No matter what the world may try to tell you, no matter what even, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt, well-intentioned Christians may be telling you, you're not doing anything wrong when the world hates you for Christ's sake. Why? Because they hated the prophets. They hated the prophets too. Because the prophets told them things they didn't want to hear. You're in good company. You're behaving as the godliest men who have ever walked the earth. Those whom the author of Hebrews says the world was not worthy of. Remember that and continue on in boldness. Christian, believe these promises and take this knowledge. Why? Because Jesus gives it to you here to help you when you suffer. Believing and knowing these things is what's going to keep us going. These are the things that are going to encourage us along the way as we live for Christ in a wicked world and as we open our mouths and speak. As I've said before, in light of these things, in the final analysis, who really cares what they do to us here in light of these promised blessings? We aren't living for here. I'm serious, we're not. 
We're not living for here. We're not citizens here. We're not living only for right now. We're living for something more. We're living for a heavenly homeland, an eternal reward, the smile of God, the approval of the Almighty, the blessedness of the King. So believe, Christian, believe. Believe these promises and reorient your priorities according to the promises. And if you do so, you will live for Christ in a wicked world. You will open your mouth and you will bear the reproach of the world for Christ because you will know he is worthy and he promises you blessing beyond your wildest dreams when you suffer. So we need to make peace with the fact that we will suffer and we need to look to and believe the promises of Christ. But there's one final thing that we need to do if we're to live boldly for Christ in the face of persecution. We must pray. Right, we're actually turning, this is not in this text. We're turning to now to Acts chapter 4, verses 29 through 31. And this is a text I want to consider just for a couple of minutes, and I mean that literally. Acts chapter 4, verses 29 through 31 says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That's a prayer. And then verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In context, Peter and John, earlier in chapter 4 of the book of Acts, Peter and John had just been arrested and threatened and told to stop preaching about Jesus, and then released. This is the first arrest that I am aware of in the Bible for Christians. The first arrest. And the first century church could see that persecution was about to break out. They could see the trouble that was coming. By seeing two apostles be arrested, beaten, and threatened, they could see that they were about to live Matthew 5, 10 through 12. And so they prayed. They prayed. And they prayed with all godly sincerity. And they asked God to grant them the ability to continue to speak the word with all boldness. They prayed for boldness that they would withstand the persecution that was coming. They knew that it wasn't an option. They must continue living for Christ and declaring his gospel. But they also knew that they were too weak to face persecution without divine help. And so they prayed. Beloved, we also must pray. We must ask God to grant us boldness or we will never have it in the measure that we need in order to withstand the attacks of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Please, please hear me. I mean this. We are fools. We are fools if we think that we're just going to conjure up boldness from within our own chests. We're not strong enough for that. God must help us. And so we must pray daily for boldness. Like the church in Acts 4, we must pray daily for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon us to help us to do as our Lord commands. We need help. And as James tells us, you have not because you ask not. So brothers and sisters, ask for boldness. Ask for courage. Ask for the bright words to speak. Ask for the heart of a lion that beats for Christ. 
And our God will give it to us. I have it on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ that our God will pour his spirit out upon us and help us if we will just ask. Tell me if this sounds familiar. You give good gifts to your children and you're a sinner. How much more will our God and Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He will shake the foundations and grant us boldness to proclaim Christ and live for him in a world that hates us. We need only ask. And so we must ask. In clothing or in closing, we want to be bold for Christ. And if we're to do that, we must first come to term with the fact that we will suffer. We must make our peace with the fact that we all, in some way, at various times, whether great or small, we will all suffer for Christ. We must make our peace with that. And we must believe the promises of Christ that we are blessed when we suffer. And we must pray for God's help to continue in boldness. Do those things and watch him do it. Watch God do it. Embrace the cross. Commit yourself openly, or rather to living openly for Christ. Believe his promises. Pray for help and watch God make you bold. He will. So may God help us. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and King, make us bold. Help us to believe what your word says. Help us to embrace the cross. Help us to embrace the promises with all faith that heaven is glorious. We have a reward. We're in the lineage of godly men and your smile is upon us. Help us to believe. And believing, help us to say it doesn't matter what they do to us here because I'm living for something else. And God, help us to pray. Help us to come before you each day asking for divine aid that we would open our mouths and that we would in our actions live righteously. God, give us a lion-hearted boldness and forgive us, Lord, for our cowardice. Help us. And glorify yourself in us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.